ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Peter Stoyanovich was born in a small rural town in a country that no longer exists, Yugoslavia. Peter's dad was a photographer. He'd travel around the villages taking photos and the families he photographed would treasure these as heirlooms. But under the communist regime, life was a struggle and after Peter's father became a Christian, it became dangerous. Borders were closed to the outside world, but the family hatched a daring plan to escape. Here in Australia, Peter eventually joined the rest of his family working in the meatworks at Altona in Melbourne. But life was pulling him in other directions. He became a close friend and supporter of Lindy Chamberlain's, and he now works helping change the thinking of men who are violent to their partners. Hi, Peter. Hi, how are you, Sam? What images stand out when you think back to your life, your early life in Yugoslavia? There's probably two. There's one as a 10-year-old, one as a child, and then one you reflect back on as an adult onto your childhood. But the thing that stands out is just the different climate, the seasons, the four seasons in full swing, um, you know, the spring, winter and summer and autumn. It was just the very distinct and what was your favourite season as a kid? Probably summer and, and winter to a point, but even though winter was brutal, it had its beauty and charm uh, both visually and in terms of our joyous experience of just using the sled in front of the house down the street, polishing it up uh, so that no traffic could get up that hill the next day. So that was <laughs> one of those fun times for us and the neighbouring children who became, you know, very close friends. This was one of our favourite pastimes. Do you remember being hungry as a kid? Life at that time in Yugoslavia at that time, uh, and this would be in the 1960s or, well, early, well, late 50s and, and early 60s, when I was there, when we were there as a family, became very difficult. It was uh, only a few years after the completion of the Second World War then the establishment of the communist regime in a place that was divided and that was, was fairly brutal. But as a child, I experienced some of the stress around that only through my parents. In terms of food and simply because it was more of a subsistence going, you had to work your summers, prepare for the winter, there were food shortages and there was genuine hunger. There were occasions evenings or some days where there was just nothing there, just either plain bread, if you were lucky, uh, with a little bit of uh, oil or anything that's greasy to put on it. And that's what it was like. Often you would go to bed, just go to bed. What about the time when your mum had some chicken eggs that she was going to give your dad? Tell me about that. That was an interesting time because my dad was in a survival. This was survival time, simply existing and surviving, managing to maintain and hold a family together. And he would go through towns, do the photography, and it was fairly harsh. And um, a mum, uh, you know, came across a couple of chicken eggs uh, that she saved for him. This was a winter time. And he came back from this long journey and she cooked these eggs and uh, I sat opposite him while he was, well, going to eat them. And there was, at that time, it must have been about maybe seven, six or seven. And uh, all I did was just look at those eggs uh, and he sat opposite. And that was more functional and just not emotional connection because it was, it was a survival thing. And this was the first time when I kind of recollect a little bit of introduction to his compassion because I'm just looking at the eggs. I don't see anybody. I don't understand his suffering, his pain, his journeys. I'm just looking at those eggs. And he looked and simply pushed the plate over and I happily received them and just ate those eggs. But the significance of that when I came back to that has been with me all my days. How much did your parents tell you about their plan to escape? 
Look, this was something that was not talked about at all, uh, simply because in those days, the control, the level of control, both um, in the internal borders or even between villages or towns and the distrust that existed between what was the old times and what the new times were, there was nothing was ever said to us as children, so we wouldn't be able to leak anything out. Because even if, if you were going from one village to the next, you had to have permission or passes to do this. So my parents, my dad went for a, uh, a visit to another town where there were some other relatives there. And I remember just when he came back one time and he simply said, sat us down and he said, we are going, but we are going at first, we're going to a wedding. Some cousin was getting married and this was going to be the exit point for us. And from the wedding, we were going to go. But he never really told us anything about leaving the country. It was we're going to a wedding. And that's how we left. So you didn't know to say goodbye to anybody? No, or No, there was nothing said to anyone. We just simply went to a wedding. What do you remember bringing with you from home? Oh, my goodness, you know, the only thing, just whatever you had for whatever we went to a wedding. And from there on at that at that wedding, um, there was starting to be some conversations that we're going to go a bit further than that. We're going on a train ride and uh, we will just be going. But no, to me as a 10-year-old a at that time, there was no great explanations. Obviously, the... Elders knew and the older children knew, I guess. But for me, it was just, no, we're just travelling. So you went to the wedding, then you went on a train. Yep. What happened next? Well, it was, a, it, was an interesting, it was an interesting journey because it began to then open up that we were actually going because we were joined by other two families. One man, young fellow who was not attached to anyone. He was not in a relationship. So there was 15 of us, uh, adults and children, on this journey and it began then to emerge uh, that we were actually going to escape. And we were told in the train when we were travelling just... We all sat in different carriages so that we wouldn't arouse any suspicions that we are, that we are going to escape because we are going towards the border with the train. And on this particular journey, um, we had tickets to a destination, but we were going to get off at a station earlier. Now, the station itself, there was no station there. It was just that the train slowed down. There was no actual station, and the train just slowed down, and people just jump off. And as we were nearing this place, uh, one of the guards or the conductors of the train began to get a bit suspicious and he started to move and uh, trying to arouse, but there's no mobile phones. Uh, who's he going to call, you know? And, and he's just kind of starting to try and get a control of the situation. When we near that place and the doors open and my dad said, jump. And I'm standing there as a child and I'm going, uh, I'm not sure about this. And quickly he just picked you up and pushed you out the train and threw out everybody else out of the train. And you just rolled into the grass and, you know, then he jumped off and everybody jumped off and then the train just began to pick up speed and move on and we are in the grass there trying to nighttime find ourselves and then quickly got together as a group and then we started to move in a direction towards some village but not into any townships outside and then some other people came who later I realised were going to be our guides who will guide us across this two-night track to the border and then across into, into Austria. How hard was that walk? I mean, is it mountainous? Is it is it yep. hilly? What was it like? Yep, it was... There's probably two parts of it that I recall. Uh, one is that we never went through any of the villages simply because of dogs and arousing people and the authorities. Uh, so we just skirted all of those villages, walked through fields. At one stage I got lost in the cornfield because we were told not to cry, not to yell, not to make any sounds. Under the threat of father's severe discipline, it was like silence. So you weren't worried about the Yugoslav authorities. No, you were no, worried right about your dad. <laughs> My father was the authority uh, at that at that point. 
So I, I kind of like lagged behind a bit. And, and when you're a 10-year-old, corn can be very tall. And it's like a big forest, you know, in this thing. And orchids, there's a little bit of the cloudy sky and a little bit of moon. And um, there's just silence. And then, I don't know, I was wandered around a little bit for about 20 minutes or so before before I was found. And then if a car was travelling, like, on the road, we'd all just lay, down on, just lay down on the ground until it passes. And it was, like, a bit intriguing. And it had a bit of that mystery around it um, at, at that point. And, but the actual journey then took us over mountains. We walked during the night, all night. Through the mountains, down passes. At one uh, spot, we were going down this quite a steep, and my uncle was carrying his son, who was uh, a little bit younger than me, and he tripped and his went forward, lurched forward, and <laughs> the child went off his shoulders and rolled down into this. You know, the ferns were quite thick. I, I recall there were no paths or, or roads. This was just virgin forest. But he had to be quiet and it took us a bit of time to actually find him, you know. He had to kind of look for this kid and he rolled into some some spot where he was just silent. He knew not to cry out. He knew not to cry out. And then we spent a day in the forest. We were resting. Uh, I remember the morning, though, with the dew. It was very cold, thirsty as water was monitored, uh, food was whatever, you just had a bit of a bite to eat because you couldn't carry much, you had to travel light. Yeah, we spent a day in the forest where we kind of rested and we could hear in the distance, you could hear workers or people in the villages, but we just stayed in this forest until the next evening and then we began the second half of the journey to the border and then across. Were you aware the moment you crossed the border? Yes. We actually came to a going through forest and we came to a clearing. And there's a clearing, maybe about 300 metres of clearing. And there is a road that goes in the middle of it. And there was also a, a ditch filled with water and there were these um, border posts. And there was also a guardhouse a little bit to the left, not too far away. And we were there maybe, I don't know, two o'clock in the morning, let's say. Everything happens at two o'clock in the morning. And uh, we, I remember the, um, the, the whole group and the people who were guiding us across uh, essentially told us what to do. So this is, we don't go any further. This is now you're on your own. When you hit the clearing, you just go. And you run across and then across the ditch and across the clearing on the other side. That's Austria now. And that's what happened. And it was just a mad rush. The alarms were not on. Uh, you could hear in the distance some of the soldiers in this in this place. I could still remember that. And then we just ran. And then as soon as we hit the ditch, again, you get pushed into the water. You've <laughs> got to struggle out. And then we went out of that ditch through the clearing and into another forest, which we believed was Austria. And then the alarms came on, um, the sirens, the, the dogs, the, the thing, but we just kept going further and further into the bush where we believed we were now in, in, in Austria. Did all of you make it through? Yeah, no, no, all the, the whole 15 absolutely uh, made it. Now the question was, well, now what? Um, were we there? Because we were at a place, crossing at a place where it was, you could likely return back. Uh, so there was a bit of stress, confusion, um, anxiety from the parents. For me as a 10-year-old, I was just on a journey and doing what I'm told and did a fairly good job, I must say, at that time <laughs> of my life. And then we walked through the, through the forest and then came to some villages where my dad could speak a bit of German. And then we woke up at this house, this lady, I still remember her was, oh, my God, you know, she came outside and there's this whole tribe. And the only thing we wanted was water and she had those... Um, she had a beautiful one of those, I don't know, a beer mug or those big tall ones and a tap and, and we really lapped up the water there. And then the police, Austrian police would come by. They didn't stop. 
past. I didn't interfere, but I just did the numbers because I'm, I'm sure at that time this was not a, a unique event. I think it probably was one of those where asylum seekers were, were crossing quite a bit. And then we asked, where do we report? And they said another seven kilometres down the road and that's, that's the journey, the next part of the journey that, that night. What a relief for your parents and those other adults. Look, it was a relief, but then, then we are walking down this particular pathway and the road is disappearing and the bush is, uh, you know, getting thicker and then going, are, we, are you sure this is the way? And then we went actually back. We go back to the place where we had the water and then the lady said, yes, you can go there. And we could see a policeman on his motorbike again came and did a bit of a circle. And then we went forward again and maybe went one or two more kilometres and then returned back. And we saw where the policeman actually turned into either his station or a house or whatever and he ended up coming out in his front yard, there was a tree, and on the tree there were apples, and we remember us just shaking the tree and picking up the apples. That was a bit of the food. <laughs> so the the policeman then obviously offered us food without him knowing. Probably, I don't know, it's stolen, but it was like generous helping off the ground. And he then said, look, if you are so afraid, but this is from my dad, if you're, I'll go with you, but just keep going straight and then you report to the main police station in this larger town. And you got there and you reported? Yes. And that meant you were safe? That meant we was well, you know, safety, I'm not sure. For, for us, it was a relief. Uh, there was a sense of relief. We were actually in Austria and there was a relief. But my parents and my two brothers, who were a bit older than myself, they all ended up in prison. When I, together with the women and children, because I was still the child, uh, we were housed in a hotel for a couple of days for processing. And then we went to this refugee camp where processing was taking place. Um, and we stayed there for a couple of days and then just moved through the cycle until we ended up in um, in Vienna in a, like a free camp where you could go outside. But there was a lot of anxiety and things in the background because you could be just picked up. And that used to happen when we were in this place. Two o'clock in the morning again, uh, the lights would come on and the police would just pick the people that they're sending back because their paperwork or their stories didn't match or whatever. We were never told anything, but they was just they were just woken. Everybody was woken up and they were just taken back. It was a, it was a very stressful time. A lot of tears for my mum and, and my dad because there was a lot of anxiety about what happens next. Um, and then we ended up at this camp and then the journey, you know, in terms of getting approvals to come to Australia uh, were, were flowing through. And you were given approval to come to Australia. How much did you know about this place? Well, uh, in my own as a 10-year-old, I knew nothing about nothing. Uh, I was just like a 10-year-old out of this village that enjoyed his uh, whatever life he had there, even though it was difficult at times. Learned a little bit, obviously, but was one of those children that was um, was very good academically as a kid. But for in those days, you used to get a number for or a mark for your behaviour. Uh, I was always on the lower end of that. Why? What? what, what I don't know. Just that a bit of that cheek or a bit of that playfulness. I, I never regarded myself as a corrupt or a bad kid, but. Ah, cheeky and a little bit of that playfulness was, yeah, I would take that on. And then it, it, the processing then, in terms of knowing about Australia, I remember my dad saying that he was given entry. He could, we could have gone to Canada, Australia or United States, but no, that's it. No. We're going to Australia. Australia is, and that's it. So you and your family boarded that boat for Australia and after a month or so at sea, what was it like seeing Australia, seeing your, your new home of Melbourne for the first time? 
the more memorable was when we arrived in Fremantle. It stopped actually in Fremantle. We all got off. As kids, we were on the swings. When my dad got off at Fremantle, he got off the boat. And I remember in this park and he found a bit of dirt and grass and he just kissed the ground because he arrived in Australia. I think that was one of the other one of the reasons why he kissed it. But the other one was that the boat stopped rocking. <laughs> so it was kind of like this is it. And then there was another three-day journey for us to come to Melbourne. And then we got off and people picked us up. And all of these people were strangers to me uh, and to us as children. But they had they had either some church connection or people that he knew. And then um, they just took us off the ship and into Footscray to a house. And that was probably, the boat arrived maybe about yeah, 4.35. By 11 o'clock we were in the house um, processed and, you know, with other kids and other family just beginning this new new life. When did you have your first run-in with Australian police, Peter? Ah, the, the, the welcome <laughs> was very interesting because some of these children had been there before and first things you learn uh, at that time, at least at least for me, you learn the swear words or the, the, the bad words you learn. But we were playing hide-and-seek somewhere in the early evening and now coming into the night and at the back of these alleys in um, in Footscray. And I thought these children know everybody because they could speak a bit of English and everybody was familiar to them. It was like their place or their village in some ways, you know, in my own mind. And then uh, there was a moment when um, somebody was shining a light. I was looking for some people and, and I, I thought that must have been one of their friends or so I uttered an utterance. An Aussie swear word. Aussie swear words. Like, oh, you that know, you won't repeat now. I will not repeat now. <laughs> and um, out of this Anglia, I don't know if anybody remembers the old Anglia with the window, slanted window, these two police officers came out, grabbed me. Uh, police was probably different because it was a different country in, in 1963. They picked me up, all the other kids came, pleading on my behalf, um, and they promptly marched me to my dad. What did Mr Stoyanovich Sr. think about uh, this? Mr Stoyanovich Sr. lashed out with a nice five-fingered salute, which was a slap, you know, and again, sloppy bad kid, <laughs> you know, and I had to sit it out in the in the room for a while. <laughs> First night. First night. First night in Australia. How quickly did your family find work? It's interesting that the next day I was at school. Uh, my two brothers, my mum and my dad were at work. Uh, Melbourne at that time, Australia at that time, I guess, but Melbourne at that time was just flush with work. Lots of meatworks. There was a number of meatworks. You didn't need the language. You just needed somebody to introduce you. That was the referral pathway of, of employment. Ah, they, they will be good and you'll just go there, be shown what to do and they would work. And you started school straight I went away. to school. Now, I, it's, it's really interesting in recollecting it back as an adult. I don't recall much of that my first year or year five, but I do recall year six it being a student in uh, Yarraville Primary School. It was it was tough going for, for us. No language skills. I didn't have any other kids my age also in that place. So you're just in Yarraville School and, you know, you get sent off with a lump of bread and a lump of cheese uh, or a lump of salami or something and that's your lunch. And you're sitting in this schoolyard with fine cut sandwiches that you envied. You just look at them and they're just so nicely cut and coloured and wrapped up. And you're just ripping off into this bread and chewing through this salami. And it's pretty pretty confronting, you know. Even as a 10-year-old, you're self-conscious of that acceptance. Plus some of these salamis were fully loaded with garlic because garlic was, you know, garlic was not prevalent, must not be very prevalent in Australia at that time because... Us early arrivals at that time, we were known as the garlic munchers because one of the insults you would get, you're just a garlic muncher. Okay. Um, 
you know, in, in my world, they didn't mean much to me <laughs> as a kid, but it, it really, and, and plus we didn't understand all the, all the language, but yeah, it was, it was a big deal. How did you become an Essendon supporter? Ah, sharing this lunch, um, I was sitting there usually alone until I eat my bread and then I'd try some games, which I didn't really understand much because in our country, football was a ramble. Anyway, this this guy, his name was Aiden. Sat down one day, I was by myself. He came to me and he sat with me, and I'm eyeing his beautifully finely cut sandwiches. And he looked. He said, "Do you want a bit?" I said, "Yeah, I tried you. You know, I give you my lump. You give me your sandwiches." And he shared this lunch with me, and he had on him an Essendon jersey. And I said, "What is that?" I said, "That's my favourite team, Essendon." I have become an Essendon supporter since then, never been to Essendon, never left Essendon. My son's an Essendon supporter, doesn't even know he hasn't been in it. And I thought, and he just stayed. There was a bit of that compassion again, that moment of compassion that left its trademark or trace uh, in my own life. I think that's as good a reason as any to support a football team. I don't know how other people become supporters of any teams or what's the pathway. But that was my initiation <laughs> into the team. I learned the songs, I followed the, you know, there was Essendon, was, and I could still picture Aiden through that moment because that moment of compassion was significant. And I think it left its mark and later on, I think, as I grew, I realised the importance of compassion. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. you when you left school, Peter? Uh, year six, um, completed the sixth grade, and then it was time to go to high school. Academically, you were still a little bit on the struggle street, uh, given the language issues, but my behaviour was not the best. I was still the cheeky blighter, and Mr Smith took great objection to that. So I was always in the last row, last seat, all by myself. But my parents then said when uh, grade six was finishing, what are we going to do? They didn't understand much about the education system here because it was all survival again. Because all that my father brought from over there was four children and three suitcases full of Red Cross clothes. That's all of his inheritance, not a cent. Nothing from all of his life, his family's life. That's what we we brought here. And then it was like, ah, oh, maybe you want to go to work. And I thought, you know what, that sounds like a good idea. So I went to work. I got a job as well in Gilbertson when I was 13 and a half. I started working there in the meatworks. What was your first day like? Yeah, you know, well, now you're in the kind of moving into an adult world. Everybody's got knives. Uh, there's blood. It's pretty confronting. I remember seeing the first time. What? What if it was shown on TV? It's like animal cruelty, but it's the killing floor. And and I remember seeing that moment of a bleeding sheep. And it was very confronting. I actually ran away and went back to my station down the other end of the of the of the chain and just buried myself in the job I had to do, which was separating the innards of the sheep. <laughs> you know, lungs go there, heart goes there, the intestines go there, and, and that was my that was my job at the time. So it was pretty confronting. It must have smelt pretty intense too, I'm guessing. It is. It's uh, it's a place that it's got a particular kind of smell. Uh, if you go into any butcher shop, you you actually smell it a bit. But in in the 
the floor that we were on, it's even more intense than that. So that's where you started. What did you have to do to work your way up that chain? You need to show a bit of initiative, uh, self-education and self-promotion and push yourself along and borrow knives from other people that would be prepared to let you have one so you could have a bit of a practice. And that's how you kind of went went up and developed the skills. So I used to go to this place and one of the one of the men would let me would teach me how to do the first cut following the um what we used to call when when the sheep is stuck. That was its he was the legger's job and, and that's where you would clear the first part of the back leg and then it would be hanging up on a gamble and then it would go further down down the chain process. And he'd let me have a bit of a practice because the chain would move quickly and you'd have to get the speed and, 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 and keep it going. And I had a bit of practice and started to develop that skill to the point where I felt confident enough to be able to do that. Then I shifted from that meat works to another and this was now about 14 and a half. I'm on the legging floor doing a man's job, getting a man's wage. And if we have problems, we'll solve them in the car park. What do you mean? <laughs> It was just that. It was just like the car park was the place. Uh, we don't fight, we don't argue here, we don't do not do anything here. In the car park we meet. And in the car park, every now and then you would go into the car park and you men would gather and everybody would lay their bags down and the guys would have it off in the car park. And it was regarded as a fair fight. And they would solve their differences, whatever those differences were, in the car park. Until I transgressed, I, I annoyed this particularly big fellow. And cheeky enough as I was, see you in the car park. No worries, mate. I will see you in the car park. Thinking he'll forget about it, but because this is about 10 o'clock in the morning, car park meetings at taking place about 2.30, two quarter to three, thinking, ah, oh, he'll forget about it. Yeah, well, three o'clock came and I'm there at the front gate. There's no one. And here comes Rocky. The guy's name was Rocky. And I'm thinking, okay. So self-talk, you've got to self-motivate yourself. The only thing I kept saying to myself, well, you've got to just minimise the damage to yourself. You're going to get hurt, get beaten up. Take it, <laughs> whether you're initiated or not, you accepted the invitation. So we went to the car park and then everybody appeared. All of a sudden, everybody is there. Bags are down, there's this circle, makeshift ring and the fight is on. Anyway, I had a bit of speed on me and he, could, he was a bit slower, so I kept avoiding and doing a little bit of damage. I thought it was fantastic. And this went on until... I said to him, you've had enough, Rocky. Anyway, this went on for a little while and then it stopped. And Rocky and I, you work afterwards. Afterwards, you go to work, you shake hands and you just work. That's the way Australia was at that time. You must have had a bit of talent as a boxer, Peter. Did you start training? After your successful car park experience? Uh, my car park experience helped me. I, honestly, it was like a little bit of, yay, you know. So having a car park victory was big. But then I thought, oh, maybe it was too big. And then I challenged this other guy at a show. Again, shows were very different. The shaman troupe, the boxing tent. You could put your hand up and go and fight with whoever you wanted to fight. And I did, and I made a mistake, and I got a real severe beating. But one of the men who was there in his uh, dressing gown, as they as they walk, <laughs> all boxers wear those dressing gowns, the white ones, and he used to work with me in the meatworks. But he was also a Victorian boxing champion, so he this guy knew his stuff. Very dangerous guy. And he was there at the shaman tent and saw me being beaten up, and he said to him, "What are you doing?" come into training and then he introduced me to to training and I began to do some boxing training and there were some pretty good fighters in those days and I began to fight later on professionally. at used to be the Melbourne Festival Hall. It used to be Monday nights the fights were on 
in those days, wrestling, Sunday morning wrestling was a big deal for all these ethnic people. On Sunday morning, you would not find anybody on the street. Sunday between 11 o'clock and 12, it was the World Championship Wrestling. Killer Carl Kowalski. Sounds a bit like Relative you, Kowalski. <laughs> your relatives. Skull Murphy. Larry, I actually remember them. It was just like, it was just bizarre. And then, and then on Monday nights used to be the, the, the boxing. And, you know, that's how I kind of got into that a bit. And were you working at the meatworks at the same yeah, time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I kept, kept working in the meatworks. Um, later on became a union delegate, which was really interesting. Here I am. I was at that time probably about 16 and a half, 17, representing 350 slaughtermen, butchers. They all got knives. I'm their spokesman. It was like, hello, but there it was. And then the management came over and they said, hey, how about you come and work for us and become a supervisor there? But at that time, you know, you used to hire and fire. I, I, I was very powerful at that. At 16 you were hiring and, and firing? Hiring and firing. You'd go to the gates. We might need, uh, say, 15 people and there'd be 40 guys standing outside and you just walk amongst them, say, you, 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 you pick out the 15. And then induction would last between the car park and the, and the, and the issuing of the uniforms. And uh, then they would just distribute them wherever they needed to go. And then at the end of the day, there would be people that we would keep or people would say, ah, look, here's your pay and be gone. So boxing, working at the meatworks, what about romance, Peter? Was there love in your life as a teenager? Yeah, it's very interesting when you think about romance. Um, you're thinking of growing up as still a very young person, a child in many ways, you know, and having a version of what a relationship is or isn't from men who are meat workers and slaughtermen. I respect people who work and I respect workers. And we were always grateful and thankful that when we came to this country, there was the ability to work and the ability to earn an income to survive and manage your life on your own. And that was a big thing. And for me, I thought, you know what, my way into freedom was to get married. This was the way, this is, this would allow me to do whatever I wanted to do. Who was the lucky woman? Uh, the lucky woman was Mary, and I wouldn't say she was picked out of a lineup, but it was almost like, like that. Unbeknownst to her, I said to a friend of mine, I said, you know, I'm going to marry that woman or that girl. Mary knew nothing about that at that time. Where, where had you seen her? It's actually in a church to be, by the way. She was walking in. I was upstairs on the balcony because all the rebels set up the top there in the background. And, you know, she walked in and I've seen her around, but this was the moment. And then, you know, you turn on your charm, you do the pursuing and all that sort of romantic stuff. Her parents really objected to her having an association with me because oh, a bit of that rebel kid, car parker, boxer, you know, there's been some other incidences of some, you know, street fights. Because also at that time Australia was very, very different. You had the bodgies and the sharpies, the level of, of intolerance and the level of name calling and and even physical threats were, were real. You know, they used to hang around the <laughs> the station and you would walk by yourself and you would be confronted by people who'd stand in your way and what what are you gonna do? You know, you get your boys and you clear a path in some ways for yourself. So but when Mary was um infatuated in love and then we got married. And then the myth is debunked that you do whatever you want when you get married because the relationship has its own needs, has its own demands, and you better learn very quickly that when you're in a relationship, you're not a single person. 
And you were still super young, both teenagers when Well, I was 19, just turned 19 at the time. Mary was 18. But at that time, you know, look, I've been working for a while as a supervisor. I believe that, you know, you can provide for your family. But inside me, there is always that ticking away. Kind of felt I can do more. But for me to do more, I actually had to, well, my last completed education was sixth grade. (laughs) It was always funny, you know, because that became for me a question I would always dread. It became that question of shame and block. What was the last completed schooling? Uh, Sixth grade. And there's silence. (laughs) And, and, And that was real. But to go forward, I had to go back. You know, you had to you had to stop and go back to school and complete year twelve, and that was a real challenge. And for for some years, a bit of that inner struggle, a bit of that inner shame that you carried, shame, insecurity, probably a better word, you had to carry that within yourself, and that's pretty. That for me is in my own journey. That was a bit bit confronting. How did you go back to high school? How did you do that? You know, that's that. Then the, there's that. There's a very interesting experience, and in, in the it speaks about the conversion experience. You know, where the lightning bolt hits you, and your world and life becomes different. And the lightning bolt hit me in that spiritual sense. You just become emboldened. I went after this experience and. Prayers and forgiveness of sins and all of that, and you, it's kind of like you 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 turn a new leaf, but you turn it in a very significant way, and that's what happened to me. It was like went to the mountain, leaf was turned, came off the mountain, went back to work, and people are going, "What happened to you? Just different person." But now you're so energized. I said to Mary, I said, "Right, I'm going to become a pastor, minister." I love Mary. Mary is a very practical and a very um, sensible woman, far more sensible than I ever was. And uh, how do you intend to do that? I said, look, I'm going to go to Avondale College. They're going to just open the doors to me. Well, I soon began to learn that the education standards and the education administrators are a little bit less compassionate and a little bit less emboldened than what I was. And essentially, doors were shut. There was no way they're going to let you in to do a Bachelor of Arts degree. With, I could hardly write. But but then I began to learn the process and there was a mature age exam you could do. I began to read the my favourite author became Jane Austen, for goodness sake. I'm a romantic. <laughs> it was like Jane Austen. <laughs> and, and I began to read history. And, and I remember the day when the results came. I ended up with uh, five level two passes, matriculated to all universities in New South Wales, uh, top 10% in history and geography of all things. Uh, of the state, oh, I was, when I got those results on that day, I sat in the car and drove and went to that register and knocked on his door. And I said, hey, let me show you something. Feast your eye on this. And that was a moment where in, in my own life you became free. And whatever came, whatever suffering or difficulty came, it came as a result of your own choosing rather than having to do it. So you did it. You did yep. that. You managed to do your, your degree, became a pastor. When did you meet Lindy and Michael Chamberlain, Peter? The Chamberlains, um, obviously we knew their story, being a pastor and, and seven of his pastors. I directly got involved with them following the guilty verdict and when Lindy was let out on bail. I was in Melbourne working in this ethnic church. Like-minded people who escaped, who came, they overcame difficulties, and they had a sense of compassion. 
for people who were in suffering and, and struggling. And at that time, this became a ma- obviously a major story. But it was it was a difficult story because we came here for freedom and yet there was a sense of persecution. There was a sense of injustice. There was a sense of name. It was just, uh, you know, you listen to all that. And I got really involved in that. And through the church, what we decided to do was to gather some supports, financial supports and whatever we could, and our aim was simply to help the family. Let them experience a bit of that family life, given the grief that she's in, before she either goes back to jail or is released. The the family pressure, that compassion for the family was the thing that drove us there. And we knocked on the door and the door forever remained open. We developed a friendship and uh, shared life uh, and still do. As recently as just a couple of days ago, we, we share life on a continuing basis. And, and that's a real privilege in many ways. So you experience the best of Australia and also the worst of Australia in that particular story. What are your memories of being behind the scenes during the filming of of Evil Angels, that movie about Lindy's story? Oh, look, the final bit of filming was done in Melbourne. The Chamberlains uh, would come down for some of that. Lindy and Michael, and particularly Lindy, took me around and introduced me to Sam Neill and introduced me to Meryl Streep. And then having the courage of being emboldened to do it. Meryl said um, at that time, she says, oh, we, you know, we can maybe do coffee. I said, that would be nice. I said, hey, what's this look? Oh, I, can, I can fix things. I can arrange things. She goes, okay. That's... And I did. Invited them to um, brunch or lunch, late lunch, uh, where she came with the family and Sam came with his family and the, and then the Chamberlains flew down and we had this, it was just bizarre in many ways when you think about it, in Altona, working class, limos rock up with these people. It's like, what is this? <laughs> the limos went away and these people, and they stayed. And it was just beautiful to see both Meryl and Sam are real people when I think, Okay, that's special. Tell me about the work you do now, Peter. The work I do now, I've been doing relationship counselling for many years and currently my work that has been occupying my my efforts, my mind, my connection uh, has been working with men who are, well, we call them perpetrators of domestic violence and uh, it's probably my favourite work. Why? I think there's a level of connection because unless you connect, you can't challenge. And men are not one thing or nobody is just one thing. None of us are either that good or that bad. We're always a mixed bag of all of those, of all of those things. And I think the key part to all of this is that compassion, having a compassion for another human being and seeking to lessen the suffering. And in the conversation with men through all of this is, what kind of man do you want to be? When you ask that question, what kind of father do you want to be? They all want to be good fathers. They want to be good men. But what are you, what's happening in your life? And they lose their way. And where is this person? How do you bring to life the person that you want to be? They want to be good dads. They want to be good people. But we know that very often the intention is one, but the outcome is another. How hard is it for the men that you work with, Peter, to be honest about what they've done? It's, it's very hard because this is not who they see themselves as and this is not who they want to portray themselves as. And um, owning their stuff. Because when we lead them into, when we ask them to take responsibility for their behaviour, they hear it as blame. You're blaming us. And we have to then unwind that and begin to talk to them and say, hey, accountability and responsibility is your ticket to freedom. Because it simply says you can be the kind of person, you are responsible for your own behaviour, other people don't determine 
who you are and what you do. Feeling that is your ticket to freedom because they don't regulate your behavior. She hasn't got the regulator out there angry you or anything because all of this happens inside you. So whenever we focus on accountability and responsibility, see it as an invitation to the fact of, you know, looking after your own backyard. You know, there's that saying, look after your own backyard. I've been using that a lot recently with them. What does that mean? Whenever you're in their yard trying to fix them, change them, you're a trespasser there. And even if you're there at their invitation, you are not where. You're not in your own yard. And who's looking after that? They're the kinds of conversations that we have. And, and, and I must say, some of the men, when they hear that, some of that processing like that, some of them can pick up on it, and they do. When you look back over this big life that you've had, Peter, what kind of pattern do you see? What kind of shape? They're all they're dots, but there is something that connects them all up. And I think when you begin to connect it all up, and the way that I would see that for me is that what a wonderful privilege it is to be in life, to be given the gift of life. And whenever I reflect on where I live, I don't just live in Coolangatta in Australia, in the Southern Hemisphere, on this planet. I live in, in the universe that is vast and eternal. It's such a experience, such a gift, such a privilege, blessing to have this awareness of your own life and the thing that connects it all is this aspect of compassion. I learned that from my dad. I learned that from Aiden, uh, you know, a bit of that compassion. I learned it with the men, even in the work that we do, because compassion speaks. It's in, in, invitational. And that, for me, is the thing that, that connects it, because whatever I do, however good or bad it is, if it has no compassion or regard for the value of the other, what is it? It's, it's a burden. It's, it's, um, it's a denial of the privilege of what the gift of life really is to all of us. Thank you for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you. Thank you for that opportunity to tell a, a story, I guess, a long story. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Ever feel clueless during smart convos? Same here. Can't keep up with everything? Don't sweat it. We're in this together. I'm Tegan Taylor, unveiling your new curiosity quencher, Quick Smart. I'll be chatting with clever people about current topics like the ADHD boom, opting out of the law, Disney as a religion, and AI stealing our jobs. Just give me 10 minutes, once a week. I'll be quick, you'll be smarter. It's Quick Smart. Find it now on the ABC Listen app.